The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases, to historic kidnapping, to gangsters, and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lace. And on today's episode, on Cold Case Friday, we dive into probably the most infamous unsolved mystery that took place Christmas Day. That is the unsolved murder of John Bonet Ramsey. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible, for sponsoring this episode. Audible is your source for audiobooks from every kind of genre, whether it's historical fiction, uh, drama, autobiographies, endless content for endless entertainment. You can check them out today at audibletrial.com Larry21. Get a free three-month trial and a free audiobook at your choice. And now on to today's topic. It was Christmas 1996 when a panicked phone call was made from the residents of Patsy and John Ramsey to 911 Emergency Services, stating their daughter, John Monet, was missing. At the time of this case, the 24-hour news cycle was not as immediate as it is today, and with it being the week between Christmas and New Year, stories were notoriously slow and breaking. But in the case of a young white pageant girl from an opulent family, the news was picked up quickly by the outlets of the day and rapidly traveled to all corners of the globe. What followed became one of the most notorious and unsolved cases of modern times. On the 6th 
of August 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia, John Bonet was born to parents Patsy and John Ramsey. With her mother's training, John Bonet started to compete in children's beauty content contests from an early age, winning multiple titles, including Little Miss Colorado Sunburst in 1995. Patsy Ramsey was born in 1956 and was a former pageant performer herself, winning Miss West Virginia in 1977. Attending West Virginia University, Patsy graduated with a BA in journalism in 1978. Two years later, Patsy married John and their son, Burke, was born in 1987. John Ramsey, 13 years Patsy Sr., was born in 1943 in Nebraska. In 1966, he joined the Navy as a civil engineer, corps officer in the Philippines and in Atlanta. Before meeting Patsy, John already had three grown-up children with his ex-wife. The marriage ended when John had an affair with a co-worker. In 1992, John's daughter Beth was killed in a car accident in Chicago, aged 22. In 1989, Ramsey formed the Advanced Product Group, which later moved with, merged excuse me, with several other companies to become Access Graphics, a computer services company which became a subs- subsidiary of aerospace defense and technologies industry giant Lockheed Martin. John was given the role of CEO and president of Access Graphics. After the birth of John Bonet, the family moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1991 for John's work. The family owned two private jets, a yacht, and a holiday home in Michigan. Their net worth in 99 was reported to be $6.4 million. But then everything changed on Christmas Day. It was Christmas Day in Boulder, and the Ramsey family had spent the evening at the home of their nearby friends, Fleet and Priscilla White, before returning home before 10 p.m. when John Bonet was put to bed. At 5.30 a.m. on the 26th of December, the family awoke to catch a private flight to their second home in Michigan. Patsy went to start breakfast for the family, and a few steps from the bottom of the spiral staircase, she discovered a ransom note written to John and demanding $118,000 for the safe return of his daughter, John Bonet. It also told the Ramseys not to contact the police, and that they would be in contact between 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. that day. Patsy called 911 shortly after her discovery and was put through to dispatcher Kimberly Archuleta. Archuleta proceeded to take the details of the crime and dispatched officers to their address. This is a recording of that call. Patsy? Patsy? 
The body of JonBenet Ramsey, strangled and beaten, is found in the basement. None of it makes sense. What else don't we know? Will whoever killed JonBenet Ramsey get away with murder? From the 911 call, it is evident that Patsy intended to hang up the phone. However, the call remained connected and Archuleta continued to listen. Police arrived at the Ramsey home and due to the Christmas holiday, seasoned officers were at home, leaving less experienced officers to deal with the apparent kidnapping. In the meantime, the Ramseys called their friends, the Whites, to help with the search for John Bonet. They arrived shortly after the police and were allowed to enter the house. At around 7.30 a.m., John left the living room to secure the ransom money for the kidnappers. At 10 a.m., the police secured John Bonet's bedroom to keep it from contamination, and at around the same time, the FBI arrived to wiretap the Ramsey's phone. At this point, the window at the time the kidnappers had claimed they would call had been had come and gone. The FBI left the scene shortly after, but left an additional officer with the Ramseys. Detective Linda Arndt from Boulder Police Department suggested that John keep himself busy by searching the house. John and Fleet White eventually found John Bonet in the basement just after 1 p.m. She was wrapped in a blanket with duct tape over her mouth and a grit tied around her neck with a paintbrush that had been used for leverage. Six-year-old John Bonet was dead. John carried her body upstairs and placed her on the floor. The police subsequently moved her body to a sofa where she remained until she was taken away by the coroner at around 8 p.m. The coroner concluded that John Bonet was killed by ligature strangulation and craniocerebral injuries. She had multiple abrasions to her neck, cheek, legs, and other body parts. She also noted that there was blood in JonBenet's underwear. The Ramsey's home in Boulder was a 7,000 square foot, four-story home with five bedrooms, multiple staircases, and a large basement that spanned the underneath of the house. The basement was partitioned into several smaller rooms. There was a brand new train set built on a table in its own room. The children often played down there. It was also used for storage, filled with old paint cans, arts and crafts, and decorations. There was a room to the northwest of the basement that had a window, with a previously broken window pane. The pane was never fixed because John often locked himself out of the house, and this was an easy way in. This is where police believed the kidnappers gained entry to the property. There was a suitcase positioned under the window, which was believed to have helped the intruders get back out of the window. John Bonet was found in the room used as a wine cellar on the other side of the basement. This room was windowless and had one door in and out. John Bonet was strangled and hit in the head with an unidentifiable object. While the murder weapon has never been found, there have been a few objects called up for debate. A metal baseball bat was found by the butler door later on in the search, but this could have been placed there by one of the staff on the property. However, there was found to be carpet fibers from the basement on the bat. Another object in question is the flashlight on the kitchen counter, the head of which was consistent with the shape of the injury found on John Bonet's head. And now we're going to take a look at the suspects. Over the years, various people have confessed to the murder of John Bonet Ramsey. Gary Olivia is a convicted pedophile currently serving a 10-year sentence in Colorado for possession of child pornography. He called a former classmate on December 26, stating he'd hurt a little girl. Another suspect was John Carr, a teacher living in Thailand. Carr confessed to killing John Bonet in 2006, and at the time he was also connected with child pornography, pornography charges in America. He was brought back to the U.S., but there was no evidence connecting him to the crime. 
It was later acknowledged that if he hadn't confessed, he may have ended up in a Thai prison, which are known for their poor conditions. The case of John Bonet's Ramsey's murder is still unsolved, and while tips can still be phoned into the Boulder Police Department, over 20 years have passed, and there seems to be no clear conclusion to her death. Or is there? There are many theories which point to the family when it comes to John Bonet's death. A lot of theories have the father, John, pegged as a killer. John claims he carried John Bonet from the car to her bedroom the night before. Yet there was no DNA from him or anyone else in the family on her clothing. Detective Arndt claimed he was acting strangely and even took the time to read his mail, all while the police were still looking for John Bonet. Arndt told John to search the house again from top to bottom to give him something to do. Instead, he proceeded to start at the bottom of the house, where he and Fleet White immediately found John Bonet's body in the basement. The detective also describes in the same interview that she mentally counted the bullets left in her gun, ready to offload them, because she was convinced John was the killer. According to Fleet White, John cried out to him prior to turning on the light to see John Bonet in the wine cellar. That room had previously been searched, so it is unsurprising that Fleet White should be suspicious. There are also theories which point to the brother Burke. Patsy may have taken John Bonet to the bathroom before going to bed, and afterwards, John Bonet went back downstairs to get a snack, where her brother was already eating. There was a piece of the undigested fruit in John Bonet's stomach found during her autopsy, and a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table, with Burke's fingerprints on it. Perhaps she took a piece of pineapple from Burke's bowl, and in frustration, he lashed out. Patsy was training her daughter in pageantry, and she wanted her not to just take part, but to win. She even went so far as to bleach John Bonet's hair, according to one neighbor. Patsy was so focused on pageantry that it took up all of her attention. Attention Burke was now being deprived of. When John Bonet was younger, Burke had hit his sister in the face with a golf club during an angry outburst, which required plastic surgery. John Bonet had also visited the doctor 37 times that year. Alternatively, it may have been Patsy who snapped. John Bonet had issues with wetting the bed, and Patsy claimed she would still wake up in the middle of the night with wet sheets. The maid once found a grapefruit-sized ball of feces in John Bonet's bed. Patsy may have accidentally hurt her daughter for another bedwetting incident, not realizing how much damage she had done. Police noted that she was in the same clothes from the previous night, which was unusual for the pageant queen. Patsy's paintbrush from her craft area was also used to secure the garrette around John Bonet's neck. In an open letter to the Ramseys written by Fleet White, who was there when John Bonet was discovered, he speaks critically of the family and the investigation. While he doesn't accuse the family of their involvement in the case, he highly criticizes the way the Ramseys influenced the outcome of the family's portrayal in the media and with the law. The Ramseys did not formally speak to the police for over a hundred days, but they did hold their first interview on CNN on January 1st, 1997, less than a week after John Bonet's death. Steve Thomas, who was a Boulder police officer working on the case at the time, claims the family and district attorney Alex Hunter refused standard protocols. This included refusing to sign search warrants for bank and phone records and giving the Ramseys copies of the police reports before their formal interviews. Thomas also stated that he spoke to one of the grand jury members who was involved in the vote to indict the Ramseys over John Bonet's death. 
who said they had voted to indict the Ramses, yet DA Alex Hunter told media that the grand jury had agreed there wasn't sufficient evidence and the Ramses were not under suspicion. Comparing the John Bonet Ramsey case to Sidwell's murder in 1983, Alex Hunter did the exact opposite and pushed for a grand jury. Thomas ended up leaving the police force because of the frustration behind the handling of the family and evidence in this case. The Ramses were cleared from any involvement on July 9, 2008. The ransom note was around 370 words in length and was written on three pages of a legal pad with a sharpie pen, both of which were found to come from the Ramsey's home, claiming to be written by those in a small foreign faction and signed Victory, SBTC. The note is the most critiqued pieces of evidence from the case, partly due to its length, but also its content. In a 2016 CBS documentary, Three experts rewrote the three-page ransom note, and it took all of them over 20 minutes just to copy the text, meaning the kidnappers would have spent at least 20 minutes writing the note in the Ramsey's house. They also put the pad and Sharpie pen back where they found them, as the stationery belonged to the Ramsey's. On the pad, there were clear indentations where additional ransom notes had been started and rejected. During the CBS documentary, Jim Fitzgerald, a forensic linguist, say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply dissected the note and created a profile of the author. Despite the note being written by a small foreign faction, the author's writing ability was high. Numerous difficult words were spelled correctly. He therefore concluded that the author's native language was English. He also put the writer aged over 30 due to the lack of slang in the note. He also believed the author was female. He gave six examples of maternalistic language used throughout the note, such as when you get home, and do not particularly like you. 
there were numerous similar phrases used in the Ramsey's Christmas newsletter. Fitzgerald criticized the phrase small foreign faction as counterproductive to the note, as it diminishes any authority in the kidnappers. There were also multiple movie quotes in the note, including Dirty Harry and Speed. The amount of money the kidnappers ask for is also very specific. The author demanded 118000 which was the same figure that John received for his annual bonus that year. The kidnappers had seemingly done their research. They knew how to get into the property and knew where to find John Bonnet in the house. So in theory, they would also know that the Ramseys could get a hold of more money. The kidnappers said they'd call between 8 to 10 a.m. on the 26th, but they never did. This wasn't acknowledged at the time by the parents, which Detective Arndt found very odd. The note also told the Ramseys to not call the police, which they did immediately. The ransom note was signed Victory SBTC, which has an unprecedented number of theories around it. Some believe it stands for Saved by the Cross, a religious quote referring to Christ's sacrifice on the cross, meant we have victory over death. It may also be a random phrase created by the kidnappers. And now we're going to take a quick look at the basement. There are no signs of forced entry into the basement. There were dust and spider webs on the window that were left undisturbed. In the CBS documentary, the producers built basement and kitchen replicas of the Ramsey house. The show included one of the hosts attempting to climb through the window without unsettling the debris, which was impossible in the reconstruction. There were also no fingerprints found on or around the area. There was also a suitcase underneath the window that was not normally placed there. It had a little debris on it, and there was conflicting evidence that John Bonet had fibers from the suitcase on her body. During the autopsy, the coroner found strange marks on John Bonet's body that looked like marks from a taser. There is a theory that John Bonet's attacker stunned her subduer, but no taser was ever found. However, a piece of train track from the set in the basement was compared to the distance of the marks that fit the two marks well. Additionally, the coroner found blood in John Bonet's underwear. They also found DNA. There was evidence that John Bonet's hymenal opening was larger than average, indicative of sexual abuse. Other supposed evidence of sexual abuse include bedwetting and soiling, both of which John Bonet experienced. However, forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee tested a pair of strong bot- store-bought underwear, excuse me, and the results came back positive for DNA trace evidence. This showed that the DNA found on John Bonet's underwear could have come from the manufacturing process rather than anything more sinister. The head injury John Bonet sustained during her attack did not break the skin, so the coroner did not realize the significant blow to her head until an internal inspection had occurred. The head wound showed remarkable similarities to a flashlight found on the Ramsey's kitchen counter. There is also the cake. There was also the case of the baseball bat, but John Ramsey was adamant that the bat did not belong to their family, despite being found on the property. Evidence rules out an accidental fall to make such an injury, as the damage made needed heavy force behind it. Many of the Ramsey's neighbors report lights on in the house on Christmas night and early the next morning. There were also reports of a missing safety light on the property. Another neighbor heard a scream between midnight and 2 a.m. There are multiple and differing reports. John Bonet's death was the first murder in Boulder that year. The officers who arrived at the house on the morning of John Bonet's disappearance were new to the department. 
It took the officers four hours to seal off the bedroom. And when the whites arrived to help with the search, they were led into the house immediately, without regard for the contamination of the scene. Friends and a victim's advocate group kept themselves busy tidying and cleaning up the house, making themselves useful, meanwhile removing any evidence that may have helped police. When John Bonet was brought up from the basement, John Ramsey had already removed the tape over her mouth and had attempted to remove her wrist restraints. An officer then moved John Bonet from the floor to a sofa, which meant the body had been moved twice before the coroner and forensics arrived. The police had no control over the situation, and the case had problems from the start. And now, we're going to take a look at some alternative suspects. Because of the number of people involved in, the in this case, there are a vast number of suspects. These range from the family itself, yes, to Santa Claus. Yes, I know, I just said Santa Claus. First, we have Ninja Guy. Nine months after JonBenet was murdered, a 14-year-old girl known as Amy was sexually assaulted in her home while her parents slept. Amy attended the same dance school as JonBenet, and she performed in several public events in Boulder. He entered and left Amy's house discreetly. He was like a ghost. We couldn't figure out where he came from or where he went, Amy's father said. The issue with this theory is that pedophiles do not usually change their age range focus, and there were eight years age difference between the two girls. There was also no ransom note left in Amy's house. Now, Santa Bill. Bill McReynolds had played Santa several times at the Ramsey's holiday parties, the most recent being December 23rd, a few days before John Bonet was found dead. He was also one of the five people at Ramsey's named for further investigation. McReynolds paid a little too much attention to John Bonet and even tried to arrange a visit with her on Christmas Day. Bill McReynolds eventually moved away from Boulder with his wife and has since passed away. And then we have the housekeeper. Linda Hoffman Pugh and her husband both worked for the Ramses. One theory is that Linda led JonBenet down to the basement in an attempt to claim ransom money after the Ramses had denied the request for a loan. The couple knew that the Ramses itinerary and the layout of the house, and they had access. They would have also known about the broken window in the basement, and they both had reason to be in the house if they were caught. And then there's the possibility of an outsider. Lou Smith, a homicide detective on the case, believes it may have been simply been a kidnapping gone wrong. The Ramses had an open house for two days around Christmas because they had decorated the inside and outside of their home to look like a gingerbread house. Between 1,500 and 2,000 people entered the property, and at the time, 38 sex offenders lived within a few miles of the Ramses' residence. Mary Leslie Durgin believed that Boulder was safe due to the discrepancies in JonBenet's case. She said there were no visible signs of forced entry in the house. She also reiterated that it appeared someone knew the home well. The Ramsey's house was expansive, so the kidnapper would have needed clear instructions to get JonBenet from her bedroom down to the basement. It is likely that only someone with knowledge of this house would have been able to do this successfully. After 24 years, there are multiple theories, suspects, murder weapons, and pieces of evidence that lead nowhere. There are also many unanswered questions with this case. Which came first, the strangulation or the head injury? 
Why didn't District Attorney Alex Hunter help rather than hinder the investigation? As of 2001, the Boulder Police Report, having interviewed more than 600 people, investigated nearly 140 potential suspects, and logged about 1,400 items of evidence. So why hasn't it been solved? Steve Thomas, former Boulder Police Detective, believes it is politics. Others say it was an opportunistic sexual predator, and some say it is a cover-up as a result of a tragic accident. After John Bonet died, the family moved back to Delana. Burke attended Purdue University. He went on to work in the technology industry and now lives a quiet life. John Ramsey remarried following Patsy's death in 2006 from ovarian cancer and now resides in Michigan with his third wife. It is unlikely that this case will ever be solved due to the number of theories and people involved and inadequate police work at the scene. Whatever the truth, it will likely die with the person or people who committed it after all this time. Let us know your uh, thoughts on this case in the comment section below. Do you think do you think it was somebody in the family? Let us know why or why not. Or do you think it was somebody else? And of course, give us a thumbs up if you like our video, subscribe to the channel, and hit the bell notification button to be notified of future videos. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening, and have a very Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. I'm your host, Larry Lees. On today's episode, we're diving into our final Christmas film review of Trapped in Paradise. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Poddex, for sponsoring this episode. If you're a podcaster looking to grow your audience and get more engagement, check them out today at poddex.com. Use the promo code Larry21 for 10% off your order. And now, without further ado, our review of Trapped in Paradise. Nothing expresses Yuletide joy like robbing a bank. That's right. This week, we're diving into Trapped in Paradise, starring Nicolas Cage, Dana Carvey, John Lovitz, Richard Jenkins, Florence Stanley. Trapped in Paradise is far from the most beloved entry in the great Christmas movie pantheon, as evidenced by the fact that it has not yet been covered on this podcast. Its own cast reportedly hated working on it so much that they took to calling it Trapped in Bullshit. Though the only source I can find for this is John Lovitz, who famously plays compulsive or pathological liars in both this movie and several reoccurring sketches from his time on Saturday Night Live. Lovitz claims that writer-director George Gallo was bizarrely negligent of his directorial uh, duties, leaving Nicolas Cage to basically direct at least one scene and telling everyone repeatedly to just do whatever they want. Despite all this, Trapped in Paradise remains one of my favorite Christmas movies, and one that I've revisited roughly every other year since seeing it in theaters in 1994. More than anything, what saves it is the cast. Lovitz and co-star Dana Carvey had worked together for years on SNL and have great chemistry as the goofy but heist-minded Furpo brothers. Alvin is a kleptomaniac, Carvey loosely modeled after a young Mickey Rourke, while Dave, played by John Lovitz, specializes in lives and manipulation. Just released on parole, they are placed in the custody of their brother Bill, a restaurant manager in New York City. Bill's, Bill knows better than to believe their story about wanting to travel to Paradise, Pennsylvania to do a favor for a prison friend of theirs, but he is ultimately duped by circumstance and the combined talents of Alvin and Dave into making the road trip. Of course, the real purpose of the more criminalistic Furpo brothers' plans is to rob the town bank. 
which has such lack security and such a great potential reward, $275,000, that even the more straight and narrow Bill can't resist the urge to knock it over. Gallo made his name as the screenwriter of Wise Guys and Midnight Run, both crime comedies involving stolen mob, stolen money, excuse me, the mob, and law enforcement, just like this one. The guy really made a niche for himself. He was also the original screenwriter of Bad Boys before it was heavily rewritten and recast from the original stars, producers Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson had in mind, who were none other than Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Seriously, the roles ultimately played by Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in the 95 action comedy hit Bad Boys were originally meant to be played by Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. And I cannot begin to tell you how badly I want to see that movie, rewritten as it was for Smith and Lawrence but starring the goddamn Furpo brothers. I have to imagine it would be one of the best, worst movies I could ever hope to cherish. The supporting cast is full of great character actors like Donald Moffat, Angel Patton, John Ashton, and Richard Jenkins. Jenkins is especially enjoyable as a hilariously frustrated FBI agent called in at great personal inconvenience to this wacky podunk town where a blizzard has made escape impossible for both himself and the Furpos, who keep impossibly avoiding suspicion for the bank robbery, despite having the rather distinct voices and mannerisms of Cage, Lovitz, and Carvey, all doing heightened, memorable characters. Cage, in particular, is in peak form, just a bit more than a year away from winning his Oscar for leaving Las Vegas. But this is much more the bad Nicolas Cage the internet has come to love with his frequent shouting off-and-on New York accent and strange angry inflections. Even more than the Christmas movie crowd, it's surprising that the cult of Cage hasn't embraced this movie more fully. Ultimately, Bill's story does follow the familiar beats of your average Lifetime or Hallmark-style Christmas romance, as he has his cold big city heart melted by a small-town girl, as well as the small town itself, a place where everyone is so nice they'll treat you like family even after you rob them at gunpoint. Sure, it's corny, and maybe it's more than a little nostalgia on my part, clouding my judgment, but I think this is a damn funny movie in the proper spirit of the season. You could certainly do a lot worse, and every year's crop of new Christmas movies has at least a few that will prove that. Have you seen this movie? Let us know in the comments section below what did you think of this movie. And be sure to hit that like button, and hit the subscribe button, and bell notification button to be notified of future videos. And as always, if you want to support the channel, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash cinemagold. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, and hopefully one day take this show on the road. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening, and we hope you have a very Merry Christmas. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.